Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'd prefer it if you didn't taint him with your whore juice. I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, a podcast about movies nominated for Best Picture. Specifically, those nominated for Best Picture in 2010 at the 2011 Academy Awards. And today, we are talking about the movie that dares to ask, how are the kids doing? Oh. Well, answer the question, how are the kids doing? Oh, see, with and T- that is the- TJ's quote, I just swore we were going to talk about the King's Speech. <laughs> that is a famous uh, moment the ki- from the King's Speech. <laughs> yeah. I already forgot the quote that you said, even though you said it about 10 seconds ago. Could you repeat it for me? It's the famous part where King George is about to give his speech, and then Jeffrey Rush is like, remember, don't taint them with your whore juice. Ah, that's right. Whore juice. Yeah, I think it was his op- I think it was speech. his Oscar clip, actually. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and then Timothy Spall just yelled in agreement, whore juice, yes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, King's speech is next week, which means alphabetically we're talking about the kids are all right. Kids oh. before kings. In the uh, Roman alphabet. Uh, yeah, The Kids Are All Right, which is a 2010 movie that was nominated for Best Picture. And uh, fun fact about this movie, it is the only movie nominated for Best Picture in 2010 that I had not seen mm. up until this podcast. And not only had I not seen it, I'm pretty sure I've seen every other nominee like multiple times. And I've, I was at zero for this one until uh, last night slash this morning. I got it knocked out. So TJ, did you see this when it came out? I did, yeah. I saw this um, in the theaters when it came out, I think, at the Tivoli, I think. Um, of course, yeah. I saw it another time in college, just there were some people that were like, hey, have you seen this? And I was like, yeah, why not? I'll watch it again. Right college? They were still doing fine. Um, okay, good. Not great, not bad, just all right. And uh, then I actually took a course at St. Louis U, because um, I did a film minor there on... Uh, what was it called? What was the class called? It was called American Queer Film Since 1950, I think. Because you, when you're in college, you take classes that are like yes. oddly specific, like yeah. that. Yeah. You know, like um, new That's... forms of textile in Romania. Like, you know, um, so, what did that course cover between 1950 and 1970 before the boys in the band? Uh, like rope and what else? No, we didn't watch Wait, rope. Rope was before 1950. So uh, we, we watched rope. We watched Kenneth Anger films. We watched some Andy Warhol. Um, yeah, okay. the children's hour, ah, um, the second children's hour. Oh, uh huh. Yeah, yes. yeah. It was yeah. it was a really really good class. But we watched uh, the kids are all right. It was maybe our last movie. Um, that makes sense. In that yeah. class, did so. you did you watch John Waters movies during the class? We did. We watched Female Trouble. Um, which you want to talk about an experience of like that movie is very funny. But sitting in a group of people where you're like. Uh, this is very, very uncomfortable and I'm not sure how I should be reacting because I want to be cool, but I'm also like, should I be cool with this? And uh, also, this is school. They're showing us this in school. Um, Whoa. (laughs) Anyway. uh, Shout out free publicity for the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. If you happen to be in L.A. Which I do happen to be in L.A. Yeah, Josh is. uh, They've got a John Waters um, exhibit Uh, that is actually... really. Yeah, that's actually pretty pretty good. I actually uh, enjoyed. Ken, it. how many times have you been to the Academy Museum now? I've only been once, but it happened. Okay, to, it was in October, so it was just this. But that's fall. more than me. I Ken live in Los Angeles. Docent. I still have not got to the museum, and you've been to it, and you live in Chicago. So Ken's a docent. Uh, wait, sorry, TJ. Did you have any more uh, viewings after St. Louis U? No, I think that was my third, and then I watched it last night. So okay, yeah, it had been Kenny. a while. This uh, I just watched it for the third time. I like TJ saw it when it came out. And then I saw it again probably um, probably that summer or fall after it had come out. Um, 
later in 2011 when I watched it with uh, with Brittany in college and along with a few friends. So I hadn't seen it in more than a decade, if I'm being completely honest. And so, um, yeah. Please can re- be completely honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, revisiting, um, I remember quite liking this movie when it first came out. Uh, I wasn't sure how coming at this film a decade removed with I kind of culture has changed a bit. Culture has shifted a bit and films that are, I think, um, uh, that, that address the issue of um, uh, a modern family. Yeah, exactly. Not not to not putting not to not to bring up the, t- the TV show, um, but. Um, there are I, didn't, pl- I wasn't even meaning to, but that is actually an interesting comparison because I mean that that show I think premiered the year a few months after this came out. Uh, Two thousand nine, that show premiered. Oh, yeah. sorry, so a few yeah. months before this, movie but it came was out, still early that in that shows. And and it is interesting. Um, some of the issues that people might have with that show, I think um, nowadays they might have with this movie. Um, it's just interesting over the decade that that subsequent to this movie, um, how far the film industry has come in in kind of trying to tackle these topics and these stories um, with a little more care, I think, which is surprising because I think we'll get into it and talk about the, the filmmaker behind the movie. Um, uh-huh. But as far as, look, you, you get the money, you have to draw in the audience, right? And so the choices made in casting, for example, and some of the choices made in the screenplay um, geared toward geared towards a wider audience than maybe today they would they would probably aim for. That's a very interesting way to put it, and I'm glad you put it that way, and put a pin in that, and we'll talk about that down the road, I think. Uh, but that's an interesting interesting thought. Um, you mentioned the filmmaker. Well, let's back up. You mentioned a few things. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what, what is this movie about? And let's, let's start there. Um, I love a movie with a clean premise. You guys know that. This has a really clean premise. Yeah. Like, I, I applaud it for... Uh, the setup here. Uh, the premise is two married women, Jules, played by Julian Moore, and Nick, played by Annette Bening. Uh, they have two kids via a donor, uh, the same donor. Uh, they each had a kid via a donor. And uh, they're two kids, Joni and Laser. Yes, the boy's name is Laser, and I can't believe that. And I can't believe it's never, like, addressed no. or commented upon that his name is Laser or explained. They explain where Joni Laser? comes from. Yes. And they then do. they just, oh, like, thank God. Laser. Thank God. Yeah. I was so curious yeah. about where Joni came from. Yeah. But, you know, whatever. Who the hell names Laser their kid Joni? <laughs> anyway, uh, Joni turns 18, so she now has the, uh, I guess, power to uh, reach out to the clinic where the donation came from. And she doesn't really want to, but her brother, who's, I think, 15 or 16, does want her to. So she reaches out on his behalf and uh, basically makes contact with their sperm donor, who is Paul, played by Mark Ruffalo. And then um, they meet him and then uh, complicates their family dynamic a little bit. And that's kind of the, the setup of the movie. And things get complicated from there, basically. And again, I think it's a really like clean setup. And uh, I really like the first like half hour of this movie a lot. In, um, in other words, it can be summarized this way, I think. The title of the film should have been Annette Benning is right, because Nick is correct from the start of this film. About everything? What or what do you I mean I mean the complications that develop in this film all I think stem from the entrance of Paul into their lives. Now I'm not saying that's not that's not to suggest that there aren't underlying problems that allow his presence 
to kind of yeah. exacerbate existing I mean, problems. Um, I'm I'm just I'm saying she's the only one who senses that this might create a disturbance beyond beyond just the normal okay. family dynamic. I, I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I think that's actually like one of the movie's strong points is the way that it kind of zags in that regard because what's the first premise of stories as we've discussed before a story doesn't begin until somebody wants something and somebody wants something in this family meaning they're not like they don't feel fully fulfilled with the current family dynamic which is a threat to nick who is like the matriarch of the current family dynamic and the initial person who wants something that sets the story in motion is laser he wants some kind of like male role model male companion something like that that's why he's hanging out with clay oh, he he's needs... like fucking loser kid yeah. and um, clay is the but, like, worst clay is like clay if is the worst. ron weasley did meth and dropped out of hogwarts that's clay <laughs> uh not a bad comparison the, the alley scene with the dog pisses me off so much every time i see this movie uh jumping ahead to a letterbox review two-star review quote why do teen boys want to pee on everything that is uh, a reference to the alley scene where Clay wants to pee on a dog. Uh, regardless, though, like one of the first scenes of the movie is a dinner scene with the family where like Nick and Jules are basically questioning Laser on like why he's hanging out with Clay. They they ha- they, they kind of think he's gay mm-hmm. because they think there's got to be some yeah. reason that Laser's hanging out with this like douchebag who's like not giving him anything. That's something they say. They're like, "What are you getting out of your relationship with Clay exactly?" And like they don't. The answer is that he doesn't say is that like I'm I'm. I need something beyond what you two are giving me. And that's why he like ultimately reaches out to Paul, his biological father slash sperm donor. But like, again, so Nick recognizes that the only reason they're doing this is because something is missing from from somebody's life. And she feels threatened by that. But the movie zags into laser doesn't really seem to get much out of of his, out of meeting Paul. Well, you know, and, and I think that another thing the movie does, another thing the movie does really delicately is, Laser feels that way, but I don't think the movie sets up that it's really anything more than you're getting older and you're curious about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I don't think we see anything at the beginning that's like, geez, these lesbians just aren't cutting it for these kids. You know, there's uh, one there's one moment. And that's when he watches Clay play fight with his dad. And there's like a meaningful mm-hmm. shot of laser like watching that rough house play fighting. Yeah. And that's like I think that leads into the dinner scene where they're like, "What are you getting out of your relationship but, with Clay?" But don't you don't you think though that is I don't think the movie is saying like, "Oh man, he doesn't have a guy to wrestle around with." Because like <laughs> yeah. you got as Mark Ruffalo says later, like, "Team sports, let's go kick some ass, girl." Like I, I think that that's pretty dumb. What him and his dad are doing as like sixteen year olds or fifteen year olds or something like that. Like you're not three. Come on, man. Yeah, sure, I don't think I don't think the it, film sets it up to be something that he's wishing he had. I guess to TJ's point, I agree. I don't think they sell that. I, I get what your point is. The camera kind of focuses on his his reaction shot when they start roughhousing on the floor. I just I don't think the film sells it though as something that he's striving for or missing. Well, what, whatever he thinks he might get from Paul, he doesn't seem to get it because <laughs> right. again, Laser seems. Uh, of the four family members who meet Paul, oh, with the exception of Nick, who feels threatened by Paul, but between Jules, Joni, and Laser, Laser seems to be least taken by Paul of the three. And, like, he likes him, but Joni seems. Jo- Joni kind of reached out to Paul as just, like, a courtesy to Laser, because Laser legally could not. But, like, Joni takes to Paul a lot more than Laser does. 
And then Jules, as we can get into when we get maybe further into the plot discussion, really, really takes, takes to Paul, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a way that. But again, that's that's kind of what I was what I was uh, the point I was building to is like the movie sets up your expectations that like Paul's entrance into this dynamic will throw off the dynamic you would think because of the kids, but it ends up somewhere else. Yeah, that throws well, off the well, oddly, oddly, Paul, as far as as far as Laser is concerned. Paul actually just ends up delivering the same kind of experience he's getting from Nick and Jules at home. Because yeah. what is the big the, the big interaction that they have when it's just them spending time together? He drags Clay along, and Paul's reaction to Clay is exactly like Nick and Jules. Yeah, reaction. why are you hanging out with this kid? This kid yeah. sucks. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> he has a tool. And, yeah. and, and that I, I think it is a nice kind of you know zig or zag sort of thing where – uh, lasers assuming, and I think a lot of audiences in 2010 maybe would be assuming like he needs this male figure in his life, so he's going to take to Paul because they're just both dudes. And one of the ways I think the movie's complicated in this way, but one of the ways that it I think interestingly deconstructs gender is that Paul is not the type of man that Laser wants him to be. Right? right. He doesn't play sports. He doesn't. He's kind of this like I don't know. I, it's hard for me to put into words because I've decided I don't like Paul very much, but uh, <laughs> he's kind of this like earthy, uh, hippie kind of – like I feel he, like he's from Portland. He's the kind of guy know? that wore a lot of bracelets in 2010. That's the kind of guy he is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's that's not really at all the type of thing that, that Laser was looking for. Whereas Joni takes more to him, even though she wasn't the one who was really looking for that, probably because he's – more, you know, they, they both kind of see the other mom in him, in a sense. Joni's pushing back against Nick because she feels like she's too authoritative. So with Paul, she sees somebody that is more uh, open and allowing. And then Laser is kind of pushing back in some ways against Jules because he's not getting what he thinks is the kind of masculine influence that he needs there. Um, so I think it kind of does an interesting... Um, kind of about face in terms of which of the kids you think and why you think they would they would be interested in him yeah yeah i mean like i've said a few times on the movie kind of it it grows out from the premise that i think is very good like i said and like when you hear that premise you like immediately see a number of scenes that you kind of are expecting to happen based on the premise um some awkward meetings some complications etc and then it gives you those scenes but then also gives you like maybe some like unexpected versions of the same scene or like what what you think you're expecting but like in a different way maybe which i think is a a well-known part of the movie uh real quick can we talk about the cast yeah yeah real quick um remarkable cast and a decorated cast Uh, this movie is recognized for its performances more than anything else it seems like Uh, we have annette benning as i said plays nick uh julian moore playing jules mark ruffalo playing paul mia wazikowska Playing Joni, did I say that right? Mm, sure. sure, as good yeah. as I'm going to do it. Yeah, um, I should pronounce. I, I think it's pronounced Johnny, not Joni. <laughs> um, I hadn't seen her in anything. I don't think, and I looked her up after having watched it, and I realized that she's Alice. Yes, and Alice in Wonderland yeah, in the same year. Exactly. She's in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, 2010. She had this. Um, this came out later the same year. She hits it big on the international stage with Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, which actually does win an Oscar, as we talked about last week. I think. Can, can I point out yes. two things about her performance that I really, really appreciate? Um, one is when she's on the phone with Paul the first time, and the way she delivers the line, uh, they, you donated your sperm? 
And she just kind of like tries to like she knows she has to say sperm because he's not quite putting all of that together yet. But then she also does that thing that like teenager thing where it's like that's kind of a gross word. And I don't want to say it, especially to an adult. And I think that's a really excellent moment. And then at the end, when they're leaving her at college, she does the like quivering lip crying thing. Yeah. And you really you cannot fake that. I've tried. Like, <laughs> it's really impressive. Pause, pause the podcast. See if you can, like, uh, you can't tremor like that. You can't do it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think she's awesome in this. Um, uh, like I said, I hadn't recognized her or anything, but, like, looking at just her, her Wikipedia page, she's worked with Carrie Fukunaga. She's worked with Gus Van Zant. She's worked with Park Chan Wook. She's worked with Jim Jarmusch. Um, she's worked with Guillermo del Toro. She's worked with David Cronenberg. Mm. And I just. Haven't seen any of the movies that she was in with all oh, the people, even though she's she, worked with some very, very talented filmmakers. Yes, yeah, she makes she makes good choices, even if they're not always the best films from those uh, artists. You can tell she's she's got a drive. She's got mo- she's got motivation to want to make quality work. Yeah. And I think it shows. As t- to TJ's point, she's very good in this movie. And then playing Laser, which again I can't believe is this kid's name <laughs> and it's never addressed or explained, is uh, Josh Hutcherson. Who uh, I know from the Hunger Games, I guess. Even though I've never, never actually seen the Hunger Games. Peter. Um, and then he was in, he was in Five Nights at Freddy's a couple months ago. As we're recording this, so mm-hmm. that's cool. Josh Hutcherson. I don't really have much of an opinion on that guy. He was a child. Um, actor, he's very young in this, right? Yeah. He was before this movie. So. He was in a couple things. I think I can't off the top of my head. I'm forgetting what they were, but I think he had been acting since he was a, a younger teen. Yeah, he was in like Zathura and Bridge to Terabithia and Journey to the Center of the Earth. I remember that. Yes, Bridge to Terabithia. That's the one I'm remembering. It's got a really, really dark, like third act moment. I think he um, was in like some YA stuff. He's not given a lot to do in this compared to the rest of them, but I think he's very good casting because Paul describes him as uh, jock sensitive type. And I think that that's something that. Um, comes across really well with him, even in the Hunger Games, you know, where he's supposed to be somebody who is able to fight in the Hunger Games, even though Katniss could kick his ass. Um, but but he has what the rest of them don't in there, which is a certain sensitivity. This has been TJ's Hunger Games corner. <laughs> Did you see the new Hunger Games, which just came out as, a, as no. we're recording this? I have not seen it. I've heard it's actually quite good, though. I, I hear it's good, especially if you grew up on the original film movies, film series, or book series um which i did not that came out when we were in college yeah yeah um also so uh, i didn't know like hardly anything about this movie i realized as i was firing it up because uh it opened and the first character you see is josh hutcherson like riding a skateboard or riding a bike or something and i was like oh my god josh hutcherson's in this i didn't know that and then within like 30 seconds you also meet uh zosha Z- uh mamet who i also yeah. didn't know was in this who barely has a role she's like maybe three scenes no but she's got but, memorable um, moments she does have member moments, and also, like, uh, this came out, I think, right before Girls premiered in 2010, and Zosia Mamet on Girls is uh, excellent as Shosh. Uh, she's probably the best character on that show, which is a good show. Um, what else? That's the cast. Uh, two Oscar nominations for the cast. Uh, some, I think, three BAFTA nominations. I think two Golden Globe nominations. We'll, we'll get that later. Um, and this was, I think... Can you reference the director earlier, Lisa Cholodenko, who I had not heard of before watching this movie, oh, but wow. I I looked her up and she's she's worked for sure. Um, <laughs> just a weird bit of trivia. Apparently, she was like a uh, 
apprentice editor on Boys in the Hood, which mm. that was really cool. Mm-hmm. That's like really cool, like cred, having that in your back pocket. Um, but then uh, the movie she's made beyond this, I haven't heard of, but she's also directed a lot of like prestige TV yeah. that I have heard of. Um, she directed like um, Olive Kittredge. She did. Yeah, she directed like Homicide Life on the Street, Six Feet Under, The L Word, Hung, Olive Kittredge. Did she di- all directed of, most of Olive Kittredge? She did all, all of yeah, all, all of Olive Kittredge, which <laughs> a big, a, a really, really, really solid uh, turn from obviously Frances McDormand, but also Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Shout out to Richard Jenkins in that. Love Richard Jenkins. Um, she she also directed some of the Slap, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> Shout out to the Slap. And she was. She <laughs> remember that was a thing. <laughs> I do remember that was a thing. Yes, she recently directed. Or I, when I say recently, it was a few years ago. Now I think there was um, uh, something on Netflix. I can't remember the title of now. It was a limited series. Um, unbelievable with mm. uh, Caitlin Deaver. Yeah. And Caitlin Deaver. Yeah, Collette. I watched the first episode of that and it was great. And then I just never finished it because I think COVID might have happened. I don't remember. I don't remember why I didn't finish it. It was good though. And she also directed. Uh, Two episodes from The Girl from Plainview, which is a good uh, Hulu series, uh, I think, last year that people seem to really like, that I also did not watch. Um, I also love, she's, she happens to be married to a woman by the name of Wendy Melvoin, who is a guitar, who is a guitarist and singer-songwriter, and who was in the backup band for Prince for years, oh, wow. apparently. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, Lisa Cholodenko's wife, because uh, this movie was Initially developed uh, in 2004 based on Lisa Cholodenko's actual experience, which is like kind of a loose, I guess, uh, statement. But um, she co-wrote this with a man named Stuart Blumberg. And the kernel of the idea was that Lisa Cholodenko and her partner were like looking for sperm donors. And she found the process to be like a little overwhelming because there's so many. (laughs) And she kind of uh, compared it to like shopping for a Mercedes where, like, there's so many options, and they're all, like, great. And it's just, again, overwhelming. And so while she was going through that process, she was talking to a friend, Student Blumberg, who said that he actually donated back when he was in college. So then that kind of formed the idea of, oh, what would happen if, like, years down the road, like, we meet our donor that we're currently searching for right now? And that's how the kernel of the idea started. And they wrote the script for a few years. And uh, apparently it was almost greenlit in 2006, but they had to put it on hold because Lisa Cholodenko got pregnant by a donor. Mm. So the events of the movie kind of set, delayed the movie, basically. Um, apparently the movie, the script people, the script made the rounds and people seemed to like it. And uh, this is a, a very classic story, but like the movie got funding because uh, talent got attached. So and that's how a lot of movies like this get funded. It was initially uh, Julianne Moore hopped on board and then once Julianne Moore was on board, they got Mark Ruffalo and Annette Bening, and then they were greenlit. Only shot for 23 days, which is not a long time at all. Um, three and a half million dollars. Yeah, three and a half million dollars. I read four, but three and a half probably makes more sense, yeah. And uh, they had to, they shot it in July of 2009 in LA, and they had to rush to edit it so they could make Sundance the following January, which they did. And this was one of the bigger hits of Sundance in 2010. It was sold for 4.8 million to Focus Features, which, I think, which was a lot back then. That, that's a that was a oh, decent yeah, yeah. amount of money to for yes. sale at a festival. 2016-2017 is when Sundance sales started to break into the 10 million mark and the 15 million mark. And I think we have, have we hit 20? I think they have, yeah. Okay, 
But back in 2010, like 5 million or 4.8 million was a big chunk of change. Um, I don't know if that was the biggest sale at Sundance that year, but it was one of them. And uh, like I said, this is one of the bigger hits out of Sundance 2010. But it was a bit overshadowed, I think, by a future episode, Winter's Bone. Because hmm. Winter's Bone won the Grand Jury Prize and won the Screenwriting Award wow. at 2010 Sundance. So I think those are like prizes that this movie probably was maybe hoping for for itself. This, especially because, you know, the screenwriting was the screenplay was very praised elsewhere. So they're maybe hoping for a screenwriter award somewhere. But nope. Deborah Granick ate their lunch. Yeah, they would. They would. They, the, the jury or the uh, the attendees at uh, Sundance would gritty and, and dark. <laughs> I guess so. Well, what's funny is um, it's funny you mentioned that because this did win. I'm kind of jumping to the award section. This did win. It, it kind of cleaned up with the Golden Globes because of the Golden Globes has the comedy musical section. And so this won best picture comedy musical and it won best actress comedy musical. And I think that kind of speaks to how uh, uncomedic and how dark and dramatic the rest of the best picture nominees at the Oscars were because like nothing of those 10 besides the kids are all right were competing in the best comedy. Do you guys want to take a guess as to what the best comedy nominees were at the Golden Globes in um, 2011? Oh my gosh. In 2011? There's it's slim fucking pickings. I'll tell you that much. There, there's a there's a very clear reason why this one is because there was nothing else out. I already or mentioned the, one of them. Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland was one of them. For really? that kind of gives you a sense of what kind of what kind of uh, pedigree we're working with here. Oh my gosh! Can you Despicable give some... Me? Was that it? A... Despicable Me was not, okay. but that did come out this year. Yes. Can you give some call. hints? Was this the uh, some hints? Was this the year of the tourist? It was the year of the tourist. <laughs> okay. The tourist was nominated for best wow. musical comedy. Okay. And yeah. Angelina Jolie was nominated for best actress, best musical or comedy, best actress. Okay. Um, so you have Alice in Wonderland, The Tourist. Uh, we have a movie that stars Christina Aguilera, and uh, I think oh, it was Tri- shares I think in shares it. in it. Oh, burlesque. Oh, burlesque. Oh. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I know you guys are both grimacing. <laughs> And uh, lastly, we have a. I, I, this is I, I've never seen this, but they made a sequel. It's an action comedy starring some older actors. It's not The Expendables, but it's oh, kind of Red. Like, red. Red. I actually, red. I actually oh. enjoy Red. Yes. Did you not, enjoy Red too? Not that I would. Uh, Ken no, feels represented and seen on screen. Not as, not, <laughs> I don't. I don't enjoy the second one as much. I. Uh, that said, it's not like I'm going to throw. I wouldn't have voted to nominate it for something. It's enjoyable. That, that is a is. rough five. That is yeah. a rough five. <laughs> it's a real rough five. And I guess while we're talking about the Golden Globes, I want to talk about Best Actress in Musical or Comedy. It was similarly slim pickings. Uh, Annette Benning again won Best Actress in Musical Comedy for The Kids Are All Right. Um, she was up against Angelina Jolie in The Tourist, Anne Hathaway in Love and Other Drugs. Do you remember the movie Love and uh, Other Drugs? Yeah, I do. It was bad. Yeah. No one else does. Yeah, exactly. Uh. Um, Annette Bening also beat out her co-star, Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore is nominated in lead, mm-hmm. not in supporting at the Golden Globes. And then uh, lastly, Annette Bening beat out who I think obviously should have won this award, which is Emma Stone in Easy A. I can't believe Emma Stone and Easy A did not win the Golden Globe. Best okay, you're, pro- you're wrong about that, but uh, Easy A should have been nominated for Best Comedy. Yeah, exactly. The fact that that's missing from the Best Comedy category, geez. Watching Emma Stone and Easy A was... You, you watch that and you're like, first of all, I'm watching a movie star being born in front of me in real time, and this person's going to win an Oscar someday. 
And that's that she's, was correct. She's I was right. Great in that movie. Um, I'm sorry you arrived to it so late because I saw a star being born in Superbad. So I also saw a star being born super bad, but she's like in maybe four scenes. I was gonna say she controls uh, easy. She's great. Is, she's really great. It's fantastic. The the thing is, Annette Benning is so good at this though. And I remember She should have won the Oscar. Yeah, I, I remember the conversation at the time being like this could be the one she finally wins for. Um, obviously it didn't happen because I mean, it, as we discussed a few weeks ago, Natalie Portman just started kind of con- controlling the board leading up to the actual ceremony. I'm fascinated to hear you guys say this, that you think Annette Bening should have won her Oscar for this. Cause I completely disagree. Uh, I think this character is like a tough sell. And I think Annette Bening isn't really given a whole lot to work with. And I think she's kind of just like, positioned it's it's a tough position for this character to be in and like she's kind of just like defaults into like the uh harpy shrew a bit and just kind of like bringing everybody down and killing everybody's buzz what and like you mean they're like extramarital affair buzz i was gonna say is that what well she's eventually justified but she's like the fun killer everyone's all like on board bringing this guy into their life and she's like the fun killer she's the She's the doorstop. She's the like, most conservative and pragmatic of the bunch because yes, she's structured. Exactly. It's interesting that she's kind of like, this is like a couple degrees away from Carolyn Burnham in American Beauty, who's also like the fun killer harpy shrew that just kills everybody's vibe in that movie too. Well, except in that she's one, she's, she's clearly in like satire mode. Yeah, she is. I will sell this house today. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about Annette betting his neck because I didn't like, I didn't, I didn't care much for this character performance. So, like, tell me why you she's, think she's, she's got a huge range from um, trying to desperately and but being so cringe with her Joni Mitchell oh, song with Mark Ruffalo. I love that scene. Um, <laughs> she, I didn't so good that. that I didn't scene. Like it at all, and really. and there and then like immediately after yep. her buzz is killed because she finds the red hair, and then that very That's next scene when she confronts Jules about it. And the the way that she, you know, Jules is like, well, I, I, I was all hot. I took a shower. And she goes, did you take a nap too? Yeah. Just like that is is beautiful. What she's holding back there because she is so closed off, but had previously had discussions with Jules when she drew her the bath about, I'm sorry, I've been so uptight. I need to be more open with you, just the way that you're patient with me. And then there she's having that moment. Well, like, all of her like cold, icy, like kind of passive aggressive you know um easy on the wine okay also for the micromanaging her monologue about the composting is amazing oh don't throw that away we need to compost this and put it in the ground where all the worms will do this and whatever and just fucking kill me like she's (laughs) she is so on point with so much of it i Um, love she's crying when julianne moore is giving the the forgiveness speech yeah Oh, I, she's. Uh, I so every scene you're talking about, particularly when in the in the bathroom scene when she confronts her, in particular, there is that shot rests on her for just a moment as she as she responds with, "Did you take a nap too?" Mm-hmm. There is so she has so much baggage. There's so much behind her eyes in that moment. Mm-hmm. Her mouth somewhat quivers a little bit. We mentioned Mia what. Mia later on in the movie at the end, but Benny has it too. Where there's there's she is repressing, like just 
exploding in that moment. There's just all of this, all of the film is built up to the point that Nick is controlled. She's obviously structured and she is trying desperately in that moment to not just, just let loose because it would potentially bring everything, destroy everything. Like she's got to try to keep it together for herself as well as the family unit if they have any hope of getting through it. I think also what, what shouldn't get lost here is this being 2010. Um, I say this also in praise of Stanley Tucci's performance in The Devil Wears Prada. Um, we're we're in this period of like transitioning in terms of representation of queer characters on film and television, where it was no longer such a brave choice, and you would go to this like extremely wild, extreme exaggeration, Broadway. you know, yeah, um, like James Corden in The Prom, for example. <laughs> Um, and and both Julianne Moore and Annette Benning, I think, are in this really nice vein where, to me, they, they seem very believable as their characters, but they don't seem to be indulging in lesbian stereotypes. I think the, um, film, sure. the yeah. film benefits from the fact that it's not really a film – it's not really a film focused on the fact that they happen to be a lesbian couple. Because if you watch the characters, both Nick and Jules could easily – they could just as easily be be married women with husbands as far as how their their just their personalities play out they're just normal people um the couple just happens to be lesbian that obviously lesbians they're just like us well, and do sold <laughs> the point is the film is not making that the focus of the story or the plot it is an aspect sure of their maybe until the affair starts yeah, but even then, an affair is an affair, no matter no matter what sexual what that's sexuality true. the partner. That's not a that's not important. Here's a who, isn't it? An affair is an it's affair. It's more of no a. I, I think her her choice of partner in the affair is like a much bigger twisted dagger to Nick than it would be if it was just like some random person. You know, particularly when Nick is like questioning how this new person entering their family would change the dynamic. Oh, no, no, no. So and then that happens. You mean the fact that he's the sperm donor. Not that he's a man, yeah. but that he's the specifically his relationship to their children and to their lives. That's if Nick is concerned damaging. if Nick is concerned that the family is reaching out to this guy because they need something that Nick isn't giving them, then her sleeping with the sperm donor is like the absolute worst fear right. realized for Nick. Right. I thought, you know, sorry, I thought you were suggesting, never mind. I thought you were suggesting that because it's a man, but specifically it's because of who it Both. is. Both. I don't know if Both. that's, that's, I don't think the that's fact fair. that it's a man is one dagger. The fact that it's a man who donated sperm and fathered the kids is a bigger dagger. I, like they're both daggers. Oh, they're both. I, I think, I think the fact that he's a man doesn't really make it any worse than if it were a woman. Cheating is cheating. It's, if you ask anybody, that's terrible. I agree with you though. It's that much worse because of the relationship that he holds to them and their life and their kids. The fact that he is of he is is obviously of some import. The kids wouldn't be there but for him, and the fact that they've drawn him in, and now, now Jules has, has cheated with him. That is particularly egregious, above and beyond I'm gonna, just cheating. I'm going to push back and say that I think it does matter that it's a man, even if it's the sperm donor or not, just because again, like Nick, as someone who is being cheated on, I, I imagine her thought is okay is Jules getting something from this person she's cheating with that she can't get from me, that I can't give her. And if she's sleeping with a man, that kind of that thought has to get worse for Nick. Because, you know, 
maybe Jules would. I don't know. I don't know. I, now we're getting to complicated territory. But like, do you see what I mean? No, I get. Yeah, I get what you're saying. And I think, but but that's something people ask themselves uh, whenever their partner is cheating, right? They ask those mm-hmm. simple questions like, "Is it what? What am I failing to provide that you're getting from this other person?" So that's why I'm is saying she I, getting things? Is she getting things from this person that she's cheating on me with that I cannot physically give her? You know, I don't know. Um, also, Julianne Moore uh, cast as Jules. Uh, I said that Annette Bening's character kind of reminded me of her character in American Beauty. Julianne Moore has also kind of played this character more than once, uh, as in like the woman who's having a bit of a confused midlife crisis who then steps out on her spouse uh that happens in 30 rock where she plays nancy and uh also it happens in crazy stupid love where she steps on steve carell to sleep with kevin bacon david linhagen yeah so i thought that was fun that she's in in both of those roles happened right around this time so i guess in like the late 2000s late late 2000s early 2010s she's uh in that lane also i like when she's when she goes to work at um paul's house working as the landscape designer She's dressed similarly to what I recall her wearing, I think, in Lost World. <laughs> I mean, they got into pretty less when we were watching. I'm like, oh, I think she wore the same thing about, 20, about 15 years earlier. Which, this is one of the big, like, unresolved storylines in the movie. What? Do they finish Mark's backyard? <laughs> uh, did you, did you read Letterboxd before I got to it? No. Does someone ask that? Uh, top-rated comment on Letterbox. The kids may be all right, but Mark Ruffalo's backyard? That should be <laughs> finished. Like, Julianne, honey, you had one job. <laughs> That's a top-rated review on Letterbox. That's Four great. stars. That's great. Yeah. Well, because I have very little faith in her getting that done at the beginning when she's like, you know, just like, let's not tame this. Let this grow. Or it could go minimal, you know, like a whole kind of Asian <laughs> thing, which is like, Ugh. And then she's like, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? I'm not feeling minimal. And it's like, you have no idea what you're really doing, lady. Um, so, I, you know, I was really hoping for that backyard to get done. But Julian Moore, uh, I think it's underrated in this. She did not get nominated. Mostly, I think, because there was a big Annette Bening get Annette Bening At the Oscar, Oscar she did not. But she did get nominated at the Gold, Golden Globes and at BAFTA, but not at SAG and not at the Oscars. Yeah, I think she's I think she's very good in this. And it's it's not as like eruptive or explosive as Annette Bening. And I think that Julianne Moore probably suffered from uh, at least I find Jules a little harder to tolerate or empathize with. Yeah. I mean, I still like her, but she's the one that makes the really bad choices in the movie. She um, also, yeah, she does. She also, I think more so than Nick, um, she has moments, even when, even when she's doing something that the audience is not going to approve of, there's more humor laced throughout her storyline. Nick seems to be battling throughout the movie. She seems every time that there's a lighter or comedic moment with Nick, it seems like she's forcing that. Um, part of that is the way the character is written as well as the way Benning is, is playing her. She's the, that the pathos seems to be stemming more from her as opposed to Jules, who like Paul is more free spirited, more relaxed. There's the jokes about the cigarette and when they're sleeping together and they're in the bed and their reactions to the gardener, the, the guy she hired. And there's, there's just a bit more comedy in Jules' storyline than there is in Nick's. And I think when it comes to the Oscars, what we talk about in all of these episodes, our one through line, 
uh, comedy is definitely going to hurt a performance more than it's going to help in most cases. So I just don't think she's got the dramatic um, pull that Nick's character has. And lastly, we have Mark Ruffalo as Paul. And once again, I just made the point about, and I bet I made the point about Julian Moore. I feel like he was, he was kind of playing this kind of guy a lot around this time period. Uh, this reminds me of his character in 13 Going on 30. It reminds me of his character in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where he's like a kind of fun, free-spirited, and a little spacey, you know, kind of like, hey, I'm Mark Ruffalo, everybody's fine, the kids are all right, mm-hmm. you know, kind of vibe, so. With his kind I, of Kermit the I'm... Frog voice that he has. What's <laughs> <laughs> funny, Frank Caliendo does a really good Mark Ruffalo impression, and he's given lessons on TikTok on how to do Mark Ruffalo, and you basically start with Kermit the Frog, then you alter your voice slightly, and you're doing John C. Riley. Then you alter your voice slightly a little bit more, then you're doing Mark Ruffalo. Oh. So it's the Kermit Frog to John C. Riley to Mark Ruffalo is how he gets that voice. So that mm. was interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my, my point is the three leads. I think they're all well cast, and they all do a great job. They're all got various accolade nominations throughout award season, and they're all playing something that I, I recognize from their other characters that I've seen them play. Um, I heard... Well, as I say, I heard it said, you know, there are two types of casting. There's typecasting and bad casting. Hey, there you go. <laughs> um, this was Ruffalo's first Oscar nomination yep. of three. Ken, do you remember what his other two nominations were after this? Oh. I'll give you a hint. Number one, they knew and they let it happen to kids. Oh, he was, uh, he's got, was it? Ken, Dead you water? don't recognize Dead that immediately at Spotlight. That's oh, the Spotlight. Yeah, spotlight. Not recognize Spotlight? Was he also nominated, though, for Dark Waters? No. He was not nominated for Dark Waters, no. Foxcatcher. He's nominated for Foxcatcher. That came, oh, that was. It's all right, Foxcatcher. Oh, so he had back to back, because wasn't it the year before Spotlight? Yes, Foxcatcher and Spotlight were back to back. He is 0 for 3, has not won any of them. And this was, uh, so this was Mark, Mark Ruffalo's first of three. This was Annette Bening's. Fourth of four. She's on for four Oscars. Can you name the other three nominations, TJ, for that uh, um, American Beauty. American um, Beauty. The Grifters. The Grifters. Okay, and... I have not seen this last one, but it's between American Beauty and this. Um, 2004? Being Julia? Oh, yeah, there you go. Being Julia. Yep. Being Julia. Not to be confused with Julie and Julia. Julia Child. <laughs> yes, correct. She's also she's she's got a great filmography. She just doesn't get recognized often enough. Have you never seen Twentieth Century Women, which is mm. from a few years after? I have this. not, but I hear it's great. It is. I hear it's really, really great. That's, yeah. It's a it's a Mike Mills has my girl Greta Gerwig, right? It, yes, Greta Gerwig's in it. Elle yeah. Fanning. It's a, a Mike Mills movie. It's she's really, really good in that. Yeah, people really liked that when it came out. When's that? Twenty sixteen, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I need to check out the Mike Mills movies because people love 20th Century Women and people love uh, that one with Joaquin Phoenix he made. What was that called? Come on, come on. I, I really come liked on, come that. On. Yeah, that was yeah. People, people really liked both of those and I didn't see either one. What we're talking about in that bidding, she looks, it looks like she'll get another Oscar nomination for this year's Yeah, she's Nyad. the titular Nyad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's another that's another role where um, the character is not very likable, um, but but Benning manages to pull it off. It's it's and a she's very, playing a lesbian again, isn't it's, she? She is with Jodie yeah. Foster, and they're really they're really really swell together. Um, they're not that they're a couple. That's that's a, not to mislead, but um, 
it's a physical performance. It's a physically demanding performance. She's a swimmer, right? Fil- yes, she's a she's an open she's water swimmer. Swimming. English Channel. No, she's so Diane Nyad. It's about it's following Nyad in her early sixties. She's swimming from Cuba to Florida. Ah, okay. And I knew it was one of the big ocean swims. Yeah, yeah. and um, it actually did happen about a decade ago, or so I guess ago. Um, but um, Diane Nyad is not exactly the most relatable character. There is, however, determination and a drive that you have to respect. And I think Benning really does a nice job presenting that character. So if you haven't seen it, her performance is great. I can't say that the film is 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 very good, um, but Benning. Benny delivers. I hear Jodie Foster steals the show in that one, though. Foster is very good. Yeah, the, it's another yeah. it's another movie where I'm not sure the movie itself works, but performances mm-hmm. performances in it manage to hold it together. Um, Rice Ifans is also in it. He's also pretty good uh, in a supporting nice. role. Jo- so, Jodie Foster is awesome. Annette Benning currently 0 for 4 at the Oscars, probably 0 for 5 after this year, assuming she gets signed for Nyad. Uh, she's 2 for 9 at Golden Globes, you know, including for this movie, one of her wins for Golden Globes. Um, again, this is nominated at the BAFTAs for Annette Bening and for Julianne Moore and for Mark Ruffalo and for the screenplay, uh, at the Golden Globes is nominated for, uh, Annette Bening and Julianne Moore and screenplay. Um, and then the Oscars as nominated for best picture, best actress for Annette Bening, best supporting actor for Mark Ruffalo and then best original screenplay. Uh, it went pic- it lost picture and screenplay to the King's speech. It lost actress to Black Swan. It lost supporting actor to, uh, the fighter, Christian Bale. Um, and that's the Oscars. And that's the awards. Uh, smaller awards presence. But, you know, the kind of movie that, like, benefits from the 10 nomination slot, I think, you know. I think I think in a year of five nominees, this is one that, like, makes a small splash at Sundance. And so, like, people who pay attention to that kind of thing will hear about it. And then it might play, like four or five weeks limited run in new york la maybe a few other cities and then it'll just kind of go away but because of the academy awards and like the expansion of 10 nominees like more people heard about it more people saw it i think it's it's cool um i'm running out of things to say but i do have like a few like random notes to just burn through can i burn through some random notes and observations yeah yes um number one movies used to open with vampire weekend songs remember that Eesh. that time period when movies Eesh. used to open with vampire weekend what are you yeeshing for i love vampire weekend uh sure. this movie is very dated in its soundtrack <laughs> very 2010 yeah Although, very, you know what vampire weekend released an, actually <laughs> vampire weekend released an album in 2019 that i really quite like so saying vampire weekend's a 2010 movie is a little uh ignorant i would say although it does have it does have a score where it, it's used from a favorite of ours carter burwell carter burwell yeah. our guy uh, other observations. Um, I like the awkwardness between Laser and Paul, mm. both when they first meet and when they meet the second time. Like when they say goodbye after the first meeting, like Mark Ruffalo shakes his hand, then kind of pulls him in like a half hug, and it's really awkward. Mm-hmm. And then the second time they meet, when Paul comes to the house, he does the exact same thing—a handshake and like a half hug. That's like really uncomfortable. And like I think that I think a situation like that would be awkward. And so I think they, they capture the awkwardness and like a. I don't know. I think it's well captured and well depicted, I think. Um, I like the Threes Company-esque misunderstanding when <laughs> the moms are talking to Laser about... They think they're talking to him about him being closeted, <laughs> and he's actually talking to them about reaching out to his uh, sperm donor. And so, like, there's a little wacky 30-second misunderstanding where, like, the wires get crossed, and it's a funny exchange. I like that part. 
It's at the point in the movie where this still could have gone down the route of farce. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because well, that whole scene plays yes, so. as plays as farce. I mean, yeah. It's it's quite funny, um, and I think all three of them are doing a very good job in that scene. But yes, that movie could have gone a totally different way, route from that that scene. Um, I think the "Why'd you donate sperm?" scene is good. That's in the truck when Mark Ruffalo is talking to Laser after the hangout with Clay, and Mark Ruffalo's like, "That guy Clay sucks." Mm-hmm. And then Laser's like, "Why'd you donate sperm?" And I believe that was Mark Ruffalo's Oscar clip at the Oscars. Oh. I think it's a good scene. Uh, I was not really expecting Julianne Moore and Mark Ruffalo to kiss, and I was horrified and really stressed out when that happened. And I was pretty stressed out for like the rest of the movie after that happened. So kudos to them for making me very stressed out. That's, I guess, what movies are supposed to do. I, uh, yeah, gets very stressed out. Yeah. This is a huge misstep in the plot of letterbox seems to think so too letterbox does not like this so plot development i'm not sure what letterbox says but i think there's two ways of approaching this and one i'm going to steal from that class i took years and years ago this is not necessarily the opinion i hold uh just because the issue i have with this has to do with just plotting and story which i'll get to in a minute but i seem to remember a um very loud very voluminous uh (laughs) at this because there was an idea that by having these two have an affair it was like lesbians they're just like us but then they're just waiting for the right straight guy to come along and change them right kind of like a chasing amy scenario and i don't really i don't really think that that um that that is what the movie's intending to say but i think that the issue at least that I have with it is that seems to be the the kind of most obvious and maybe laziest way to create conflict in the movie. Like the movie needs a second act. And I find there are so many things that are either touched on or not at all touched on that would have been much more interesting to explore in the second act. So I, I find this to be very kind of um, obvious writing. And by point of comparison, even though these movies are not the same, I recently saw Past Lives and one of the things that it's I a thought great fucking movie, man. One of the things I thought was, was great movie, very good about it was it didn't it didn't do this right. Um, the main three ish characters in that movie, and I, I'm going to try not to spoil anything, but they're all like pretty good people making yep. pretty good choices, and it's just the situation that's the antagonist. And in a sense, Paul in here is the antagonist and that he kind of presses on cracks that were already there and the cracks become um, fissures. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think there's a much more interesting movie here that doesn't need to go to the, you're having an affair because then this becomes a movie about marriage. Right. Um, And it becomes about the kids and and it becomes a movie as Ken used earlier uh, using that word normal, which we got to get to in just a minute. Um, Wouldn't it be so much more interesting if it was just about drawing the the less obvious boundaries of how much do we want this man to be in our lives because what is he bringing to our kids that maybe we just need to kind of humble ourselves that this is another good adult that could bring certain things to them and where do we actually no 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 we are the parents here go get your own family and we need to keep you out of that and i think which is ultimately that, what happens which he says to him at the very end yeah yeah but i think that there are like less obvious ways of getting there that would have made this feel less um 
I, it feels very contrived to me what what happens in the second act there. And I, I have more to say about it, but I've been talking too too long here. So did, did, does it affect you guys that way? Can I segue into Letterboxd and then tell you my thoughts? Sure. But then I do want to come back to the whole normal business. Yeah, yeah, we will. But like Letterboxd is kind of making the same point that you're making here. And um, let me just read a few of them. Uh, this is the second highest review after the first one being about whether or not Mark Ruffalo's backyard gets finished. Uh, this is a three-star review that says, I just want a lesbian movie where the lesbians are happy, where they're comfortable, and where they don't cheat on their wives with men. Mm. Okay. Uh, one and a half star review. This has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I just want to know why. Because it shows a, quote, flawed lesbian family, question mark. Because let me tell you, there are plenty of better ways to show that than by having a lesbian cheat on her wife of 18 plus years with a man, all caps, and not just any man, but their sperm donor. Mm-hmm. Also, Paul could have been an amazing character, and at first he was. He was a nice father figure that came into the kids' lives, but no, he had to ruin it. Really, this movie just depressed me. Like, I guess it had a happy ending, quote-unquote, but what cost? The family's all traumatized, emotionally unstable, and on shaky ground with each other now. Mm. And then other other reviews kind of get to the same thing. Uh, quote, I, don't, I just don't get why a lesbian woman would betray her wife with a man, again, all caps, specifically their sperm donor. From the moment they those two kissed, the movie started to get weird vibes and ruined the main idea to me. Everything here is well done except the screenplay. It, it, it seems like a, a sitcom thing. And then those two are sleeping together. Yeah, ah, it, you know. <laughs> the problem is it's forced. It's a for it, it's forced complication to your point that you mentioned earlier. And this is what I was trying to allude to earlier. You don't need that, nor is it nor does it feel natural at all to the characters. Mark or not Mark, but Paul, his character. Yes, he's there to create conflict. He can do that without the affair. He can't he and he and Jules naturally are more similar. Therefore, it is believable that they would be friendly with each other, that they would be friends, that they would spend time potentially with one another. And that would somehow take away from Nick and Jules' time together and their relationship, and it would highlight the differences between those characters, which does come back that that if if this film is intending to speak to marriage, you still get there without having the affair. So the mm-hmm. fact that they kiss and then sleep together feels forced well, because it doesn't seem natural. It doesn't seem like a natural next step for these characters. And I mean, I guess on the one hand, I think that again, it's kind of a microcosm of like Jules is not getting something from Nick, and that's why she's going outside the relationship. It's like. Nick needs to like open up more, I guess. So that that I guess kind of makes sense on the one hand. But coming back to something both of you said at different times, Ken, you kind of alluded to like making this more broadly appealing, and I feel like this plot point kind of makes it more appealing to a straight audience. And like, does it need to do that? And maybe that's the whole like this movie came out in 2010 versus had this movie come out in 2023 thing. And like, I don't know that that kind of reads cheap to me now. Yeah, and. Another thing you maybe were kind of alluding to, TJ, is that, and what the letterbox review seemed to allude to, is that, like, um, <laughs> I'm sorry for getting, like, a little political, but, like, I feel like um, the homophobic view of lesbian women is that they're just going through a phase, and that they actually just, like, are eventually going to end up with a man, and, like, that's, like, really invalidating and really harmful, but that is, like, a real thing that people deal with, and so, like, the idea that Julianne Moore cheats on her wife with a man like maybe some viewers found harmful and i i but i also like you know this is written by lesbians like i don't really i'm not it's not really my position to say what's harmful or not but like 
that just seemed to rub people the wrong way for various reasons. Ken doesn't make story sense to you. TJ, it seemed to rub you the wrong way too. It seemed to rub Letterboxd people the wrong way. So which, there's something there, I guess. Which is interesting. I wonder, I mean, obviously it, it did fairly well. We'll talk about uh, the, the, re- the reaction a little bit later, I guess. But it strikes me as a little odd that people at the time would have been okay with that as if like, oh, well, that's going to appeal to a broader audience and it somehow does. Um, I mean, I admitted earlier, I liked this film when I saw it. That did rub me the wrong way at the time I saw it, though. I was very deeply uncomfortable with the storyline going in the direction of Jules and Paul sleeping together. Um, and it, it is weird time, like, because it's played for laughs. The initial, the first time they sleep together. Kind of, yeah. But like at the same time, like the movie does like come down on the side of like, this is very clear, like a one-time thing where like Jules is going through something and not like a... This doesn't awaken anything in her or anything like that. No. This is like a very clearly a mistake that she's making. Oh yeah, and, she, and like she slams it down multiple times because the problem is she does. They also use it to feed this kind of like previously suppressed aspect of Paul's character where he suddenly wants the family life that he previously yeah, and didn't he wants have. to have it with Jules, and like he even like says like this is good. You can leave Nick and we can start something. Yeah. And then Jules immediately shuts that down. She's like, dude, I'm gay. Yeah. What are you talking about? Like. This doesn't again. Again, the movie comes down to the fact that this is like a a singular mistake that she's making, and not like a opening up her life or something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that. Um, I think. So it, I guess to the movie credit, it does land there. It it earns some uh, progressive points, for lack of a better term, by not really needing to define jewels. You know, uh, Nick says at some point, like, "But he's straight now," and she's like, "No, but you did have sex with a man multiple times." And it also doesn't need her to be like, I'm coming out as bi or something like that. Like it just, she, she can have sex with men. She can have sex with women. She clearly seems to identify more as a lesbian, but I think the movie is maybe more spectrum woke than it seems on the surface. Um, One of the things I'm, and I'm going to steal this from that class uh, again, and it's not necessarily my opinion, but I think it's an interesting uh, context from people uh, in that class who had very, very strong opinions about this, including my professor. Um, and her issue with this movie was, uh, after all the movies that we had seen previously, a lot of them were as, took a lot of aesthetic risks. We talked about John Waters. We talked about Kenneth Anger, Andy Warhol, um, taking these big sort of uh, Todd Haynes. Um, and that the idea was a queer film, because it was kind of underground and because it was outcast, also had to take a roundabout way in terms of farming aesthetics, that traditional ways of of telling narrative and telling story in cinema was not fit to a group of people who had the had been ostracized. So, so what's happening then in the late two thousands and early twenty tens is you're seeing uh, a, a strong push within culture to normalize uh, by way to to accept by way of normalization. And so Ken mentioned Modern Family, right? And then we've got the very next year, we've got The Kids Are All Right, both of these coming right after a series of challenges even to the Supreme Court about uh, same-sex couples and whether they can adopt children, what their rights there are. Both The Kids Are All Right and Modern Family seem to be taking the, um, you know, they're just like us. Hey, hey, straight people, don't worry. These gay people aren't that crazy and out there and they're not you know predators and groomers whatever they're just like us right and there's a, there's obviously a strong uh political usage to that um but 
the a view that was presented to me within the class was that there's sort of a reactionary or more um, kind of radical view, which is this is actually just a way of, um, for lack of a better term, like straight washing these people in their narratives. Um, yeah. And so what happens with The Kids Are All Right is The Kids Are All Right is a movie about reestablishing the institution and the powers of marriage, which Jules and Nick are not married because they couldn't legally have been married at that point in time. But it ends with a, you Actually, know, we could couldn't they have been in California, I believe, by 2010 because they share a last oh, name. Oh, yeah, you're right. you're right. You're right. You're right. You're yeah. right. Um, and uh, and so it's like you guys shouldn't break up. You should get back together, you know, which is a nice and beautiful thing. And I hope that things go well for them after their 18 years. But um, that even having the complication of the like one spouse cheats on another is kind of a quote unquote like heteronormative um hook to throw into a movie or complication to throw into a movie. The is sitcom though, structure of it. Um is it though or is it the, just because that's it's because most of the, the movies and TV shows we've seen cheating in involve heterosexual couples. Because yeah I think the well, movie I, part of uh-huh. part of what she's suggesting is this is I mean this is this is part of the complication and the problem of why it's not really doesn't really fit with the characters the way we know them prior to the affair. But I think there's also something where uh, Cholodenko might be pointing out the fact that, you know, cheating does mm-hmm. happen. Like the, yeah. the fact is this couple is married. They've been together for 18 years. And in California, granted, it wasn't legal the entirety of the time that they're together as a couple. Um, in fact, they've been together at least 18 years, right? Cause they've got a daughter mm-hmm. who's just turning yeah. 18. So, um, the point yeah. is there's a relationship there and there's something broken in it. Yeah. Well, and I hear your point. I'm not – the whole monologue I'm making is not necessarily the point I'm making. It's just an alternative perspective from others that aren't here that I you know, I think is kind of interesting. Um, but it, just one last point with that is like you also have to remember that what Obergefell v. Hodges was, what, 2015? Right. Right. So there's there's a lot of popular media like this that's trying to do um, sort of progressive political work, but progressive in the in the sense of um, equality, meaning same. Right. So this idea of once we can get uh, gay marriage, then we've sort of like solved um, discrimination against gay people, which obviously nobody actually believes that. But it was a similar thing as like, well, Obama's elected, therefore racism's over, which of course isn't true. Right. Um, but this kind of politics of, um, achievement of equality erases all kind of complications, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, that- it makes sense. <laughs> um, sorry for the, the, the tangent, but I think, I think the movie then exists in an interesting space where this is very much an Obama era movie. I think is my thesis. Um, I think that's fair. Yeah. This is, we brought up Modern Family by accident, but it is like hard to not think about like the 20, 2009, 2010 that Modern Family came out in, that the Kids Are Right came out in, and then like how both American media and the portrayal of same sex couples has changed since then, and also like how just the, the culture at large has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, so this does feel like a relic to an extent. I. I don't know that I agree completely with the way we're interpreting that. I think I think times have changed only to the extent that it feels it feels like a quaint idea back or it feels like a, a kind of a time capsule in the sense, hey, you've got two really stellar independent actresses 
who we're going to slid, slop, slid into this movie as the leads, both of whom are heterosexual women, and they're going, but they're playing our gay leads, and they're going to make it more relatable to the audience because, as we said earlier, trying to reach a white audience. I don't know that I, I'm not entirely convinced with the argument, TJ. I think that you were bringing into it, and again, I know you were referring to mm-hmm. pe- people's reaction to the film. Um, I'm not sure I have a problem with that as the, the aspect of the film that suggests, you know, what whether whether or not they're they're gay doesn't change the problems that are arising like the idea that the the problems and the fissures that we've talked about that are arising in this relationship and in this family unit they could arise in any family unit i don't think that's necessarily harmful i and, and i think it's a well-intended um, effort i think some of the problems come in related to how the screenplay decides to open those fissures and complicate mm-hmm. further complicate the storyline because yeah. as we've discussed the relationship between Jules and Paul just doesn't feel comfortable doesn't feel right and it feels to your point like something out of a, a kind of a, a backwards or you know in an offensive but not meaning offensive kind of storyline mm-hmm. where Hey, we didn't we didn't mean anything bad by this, but uh, yeah, you're feeding into the the stereotype that Josh was referring to earlier, where yeah, the lesbian just needed a straight guy to come mm-hmm. and, and win her over, and it just that it doesn't hold well, it doesn't hold up, and it doesn't it shouldn't really have been well received at the time. Um, the film was, and it just doesn't age it very well because even just 13 years later, it just leaves an uncomfortable feeling to the audience. <laughs> I think to to try to again voice the kind of devil's advocate, um, I think what they might say is, yes, but the conflict of there being a threat to marriage is something that is kind of by definition heteronormative because marriage is a heteronormative institution. I think that's what they is would it? say. Okay. Um I'm not I'm not 100% sure, but I'm trying to <laughs> um, and and what I think is an interesting um critique at, <clears throat> excuse me of the way this movie's received now is um who's to say there aren't people like that who have like Nick and Jules who have these sort of complications. Sure. I think where we're at right now is that we're believing that we're very very critical of media that is depicting specific identity categories because it cannot be an all-inclusive identity category you know so it's brought up a lot with race it's brought up a lot with sexuality where it's like oh i didn't like this version of it because that's not true to my personal experience well there's there's millions of people (laughs) that that have a immigrant experience or have an experience of being black in america or have an experience of being elderly or you know whatever it is right you're never going to capture all of that in there um yeah, I I think you're right. Yeah, you're you're completely correct that something like what happens in this film could eas- very easily happen in real life. It's a conceivable concept. The problem I think more or le- more or less comes in with the characters as we've we recognize them in the story and in the film. So the way they're played, the way their their story unfolds, choices made I think are made not in not with the story or the characters in mind necessarily but with an outside view and how is the audience going to react to where we're taking this this story 
mm-hmm. um, which is where, again, it kind of drops off a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that in maybe perhaps trying to broaden the appeal, something like what happened the year before with Modern Family, certain choices are being made that don't necessarily age well because, well, we're trying to – we're you're trying to make an effort, so to speak, um, a social – make a social stand, make a social point, and it's well-intended, but it's for a time and a moment, which is where you're saying it feels like an Obama-era movie because, yeah, that's the time in which we're – we're living in at the time in 2010, right? So it feels very much like that where we're trying to make huge steps and trying mm-hmm. to overtly correct for – past wrongs and it doesn't necessarily age well because it feels somewhat forced and unnatural it's not like it's not like it's a it's a naturally evolved story i I, I guess i want to say that you could could make that point in terms of like focus features choosing to buy this and put it out but i also don't want to like put i don't want to ascribe that to the filmmakers because again uh lisa chilodenko is just like writing about Sure. kind of the experience she was having at the time and she brought in a co-writer who was writing about experience he had in the past so like i don't want to like assign that to them necessarily like, they're trying to capture like the moment necessarily but maybe focus features sees this sundance and thinks oh the moment let's buy this and put it out now and like that's kind of well to be fair you can maybe ascribe that to the distributor Cholodenko and bloomberg are um hy- this is all hypothetical right because this there's they're they're projecting what it oh. what could conceivably happen in a situation like no, this, because- like I said, Lisa Cholodenko was like looking for sperm donors with her partner at the time that she came up with the idea for this movie, and Stuart Blum- Blumberg donated sperm in the past. So they kind of like combined their two experiences into like, a, hey, what if this were to happen? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it is a hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's what I'm saying. That that part's hypothetical. Yeah. Yes. The the events of the film, the the basic, the only thing that the the, the writers have in common with the storyline, the guy gave sperm that may or may not have been used. By any couple, for that matter, mm-hmm. and she and, was looking for she and her partner. Were looking yeah, for you, yeah, you have the the writer and her partner were looking for. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, TJ, we've kind of been like dancing around this, but like, what do you think about this movie's best picture nomination, and how does it stand? How does it hold up? Can I ask another question first? Um, I will answer that question, but I, I I'm I was curious about this because I was thinking about this for myself. Is this the first movie you guys had seen with lesbians in it? The first movie I've seen with lesbians in it. Well, I guess not for you now at your age, but like if you saw it when you were in 2010. Um, I watched like three quarters of But I'm a Cheerleader when I was in high school, but I didn't finish it. But that's a movie with lesbians. Okay. And I think I've also, I think I'd also seen Lost and Delirious before I saw this, with his, which is a Piper Parabo movie. That's oh. like a lesbian tragedy kind of movie. Okay. Um, so no, this would not have been, it would have been. Among the first, mm-hmm. but it would not have been the first had I seen this in 2010. Okay, but I've since seen like you know Carol and yeah, other movies yeah. with lesbians since then. So that's an interesting question. I'm not sure how to answer that because I certainly seen lesbian characters, but it, this is probably the first film I recall seeing in a theater in which the two leads are are depicted are there are basically a lesbian couple. Yeah. Um. To your point. Um, I mean, there are gay figures who have appeared throughout films before this. Sometimes it's not overt. Sometimes it's, you've got to read between the lines. Um, and I think television had made a lot more leeway in that regard. I mean, I remember as a kid, my, we watched Ellen, for example. So having a gay character come out, for example, in television in the 90s, I think, yeah. I think that's something that 
so this that made this film not unusual in that regard because I guess our generation was growing up at a time when okay, so the main characters are are lesbian, but it is now that I'm thinking about it. I don't know how many major motion picture releases mm-hmm. had like yeah. just these are the leads. Lesbian all couple. I, that's what All I could think of was uh Chasing Amy, which again I wouldn't really call progressive. Yeah, that's but, not a progressive. Uh, yeah. uh, th- that's not what I asked though. Yeah. Um the the hours with Nicole Kidman and then uh Notes on a Scandal. Well, with uh Judy Dench and um Kate yeah, Blanchett, which it's a really good movie, but it, but Looking at all three of those movies, doing very different kind of political work than what we've just hit on with with the kids are all right. You know? Yeah, well, like what pops to mind is not necessarily the notes. Notes of scandal is a good one because I think it's more it's a more overt um, aspect of the film. Chasing Amy's very different because it's primarily one character, um, and she's it, it's not really about her so much as it is the guys. And that's right? about a straight man yeah. like trying to woo a lesbian woman, which again. Uh, does not age well. What, I think. I'm struck by like a performance that I always really loved um, from Primary Colors. Kathy Bates plays a lesbian in that film, oh. and mm-hmm. she's got a really she's probably one of the, she's the scene stealer that she steals the movie. She's the best performance in the film, as um, she often is. She's and she is openly gay in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, I wouldn't really consider that as a good example here because she she is gay. She's openly gay, but the film is not at all really concerned with that because that's not the focus of the movie okay. um, why are you asking that tj i i was just thinking about it as as i was kind of preparing for this episode and thinking about again what was the moment in 2010 and what other films might have been in people's uh recent memory bank that would have been kind of playing in the same arena and i i guess it made me appreciate a little bit more um the not not first first is i i would be uh remiss if i said firstness of this but the um kind of reiteration that it was doing at the time so to answer your question um i am kind of okay with this movie um there's things i like about it and i think that the like the second act thing i think is is really pretty bad um the the affair business and i think that that um that movie could have gone in much more interesting directions, and I have a big problem with that. Uh, I think probably the best picture aspect comes from it's funny, it's heartwarming, you could cry at it, and it's it's a pretty palatable movie about gay people that are just like us. Um, yeah. So in that case, uh, I think it's pretty consistent with the type of movies that get nominated for best picture because a lot of the time they do try to go – which one of these movies represents where my personal progressive politics Socially are? liberal, but yes. not necessarily challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I imagine that has a large thing to do with it. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know that I would have nominated this for Best Picture. Um, How about you, Ken? Yeah, I enjoy. The, I still enjoy the film. Like TJ, I've got a problem with the direction of the, the story. Um, up until the point that, in, in fact... No, yeah, up until the point where Jules and, and Paul kiss, um, there's a lot of potential here. In fact, I really like the film. And even after the kiss, there are scenes in this film that I really love. I absolutely love the scene, the entire sequence at the college at the end of the film. I think it's a, a really beautifully mm-hmm. performed and um, filmed sequence. Um, and how, like, the, the paradox of, like, kind of saying goodbye to a family member, but also, like, 
kind of brings the family back together yeah. to an extent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, exactly. And I, I think, I think it makes sense. I completely understand why it was nominated in 2010, particularly if we're discussing the fact that it feels like very much like a 2010 film. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all that it's there. Personally, I probably wouldn't have nominated it. Um, I'm happy though. It, I'm, I'm happy though that we're discussing it. I'm happy that people liked it. I'm happy people saw it. Um, yeah, it just feels like a moment, kind of a, a time capsule. It's a movie of a moment. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything you guys are saying. Um, I guess to comment on the second act thing, being the affair that takes place between Mark Ruffalo and Julianne Moore, um, I understand why people have issues with it. I understand why you take issue with it, TJ. Um, you seem to think it's like the it's a, like at least the less interesting route the movie could take. I think it like makes sense to me dramatically, though. Uh, like I said, like the whole issue with Paul entering the scene is that Nick is worried that her family, her kids specifically, will like find something in him that um, is lacking in their existing life. And then it turns out Jules does that. Um, so I think, again, that like makes sense dramatically to me. And it's like an interesting twist. But I also get like why people took issue with it. So, you know, whatever. Um, and I also, to put words that sounds like both of you kind of feel i feel this is a little slight this is a bit of a slight movie to me mm-hmm. um i mean it's only an hour 40 so like you know who cares if it's slight but um again this is like the kind of movie that like will slide in when there's 10 nominees and i think there were exactly 10 back then right if this came out in a year when it was like up to 10 between 5 and 10 like there's sometimes only eight or nine nominees i don't think this gets nominated but when they have like 10 full slots to fill out uh this is the one that would slide in um I like it. I think it's pretty good. I'd recommend this to most people, maybe. Um, here's a question, though. Do you think this is like the 2010 Best Picture nominee with the least amount of legacy in 2023? Let me say, I think there's a reason that I have not sought it out. Like, it came out in 2010. I didn't see it then. And then I kind of haven't really felt a, a, a longing to go check this one out, even though I've like rewatched the other nominees a few times a piece. I think... This is separating from my personal like viewings. I would say I think True Grit probably has the least legacy, has the the the, short, the shortest like tail. That has Haley Steinfeld though. That was the yeah, gives coming a, out party for Haley Steinfeld, who's now like a pretty big star nowadays. Yeah, but I think this. I think this. The the just the very fact that we were having the discussion we're having. I think the kids are all right is something that's going to draw viewers in more it's more likely to be something people seek out true grit is not only a remake the only real compulsion people have to probably watch that is because it's a coen brothers movie um, but it's a kind of a footnote in the cones from our right movie, yeah it's not one of their bigger movies um yeah so i feel like that one probably has the it's not, not we'll get to true grit not say anything bad about true grit i just i think this one probably has a bit of a bit of a more beefier i think it's beefier legacy i think than that one uh a la beefier yeah legacy. a la buffier yeah Beef. Dare dare I suggest the King's speech? <laughs> Which one is that? anybody rewatching the King's speech? Do you hear my parents are rewatching the King's speech? Talk my parents are. I just I just saw them over Thanksgiving and like. Do you, do you hear we any filmmakers general, talk and about came up. when Ari Aster's like when I was young and then I saw Tom Hooper's The King's Speech and I knew this is what I wanted to do. I like, think we're going with what Ari Aster watched. That's our metric for cultural well, significance. No, what Ari Aster's watching. But but there's an argument to be made that 
you, you want to decide what movies are going to stick around. You find out what's the next generation of of artists making. That's why I'm picking. I Ari actually, Aster. I actually had a conversation one time with um, somebody who had attended film school and cited Tom Hooper, and it wasn't until a couple sentences into their description or reference that I realized that she meant Toby and not there Tom. you go yeah. um, that is the closest <laughs> I think I've ever come to having someone reference I also so, think nobody's watching the fighter no one's really watching the fighter that that was actually something I was going to bring up as a fighter um, that did also win two acting Oscars mm-hmm. so and this didn't um, I will say that uh, the reason the King's speech came up when I was talking to my parents over Thanksgiving is that we were talking about uh, you guys probably aren't familiar with Immaculate Grid because there's no reason you two would be familiar uh, with Immaculate Grid. I play it almost every morning with baseball. Okay, I stand corrected. I'm happy to hear that. I'm not very so. There's a baseball version. There's a football version. I'm not very good at either of those. My dad plays the baseball one every day, and he's very good at it. Oh. Um, but there's also a movie version. What? Where it's like a movie grid. Yes. What? I'll I'll send you a link. Please do. But it's like, um. Here are these three actors. Can you name a movie they were in together? Uh, here's a director and a few actors. Can you name a movie that this director made with these three actors, um, et cetera? That kind of thing. Like what's a grid scenario? And uh, Colin Firth was on the movie grid this past week, and so he had to come up with a, a comedy starring Colin Firth, a movie released between 2010 and 2023 starring Colin Firth, and also a one-word title, ignoring the. Starring Colin Firth, which I could not come up with, by the way. That one stopped me. I could not come up with a one-word Colin Firth title. Can you right now, TJ, come up with one? A one-word title with Colin Firth. A one-word title that features Colin Firth. Doesn't even have to star, but he's... Features Colin Firth. I came up with nothing. Oh, you know what? I just came up with one. 1917. That would count. That would count. Yeah. Yeah, features. Okay, features, yeah. Yes, he's in that briefly. But, like, I actually Googled Colin Firth movies, and I had to scroll for a minute... Before I found a one-word title. So that's, yeah. that is a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that, my parents also play that. And uh, the, so the King's Speech came up because of that. So like, if Mark Ruffalo, Annette Benning, or Julianne Moore comes up in the movie grid, and Julianne Moore definitely has, because I remember her recently, I don't think anybody's come up with The Kids Are All Right. That's like the sixth most important movie that any of these three have been in. And The King's Speech is maybe like the number one or number two most important movie that Colin Firth has been in. Hmm. And like... Uh, Jeffrey Rush, and even Helena Bottom Carter is probably in her top five. So, like, that's why I think The King's Speech is a bigger legacy than The Kids Are Right, even setting aside the fact that it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actor. So, okay. Any other thoughts on The Kids Are All Right before I transition to talking about next week's stuff? I love Annette Benning. Just, just drop that <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Ken, number one Nyad fan of 2020. <laughs> uh, speaking of next week, I kind of already have transitioned and talking about next week's movie because next week's movie is The King's Speech, which TJ seems to think doesn't have much of a cultural legacy, but I think does? Question mark? Okay. So uh, next week we will be discussing the Best Picture winner, Best Director winner for the just staggering genius of Tom Hooper, uh, Best Actor winner, Best Screenplay winner, Original Screenplay. Um, did it win anything else? Was it just those four? Not that it needs to win anything else. Those are four big <laughs> ones. The same. That sounds about. Those that sounds four. about right. Yeah. 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 Um, other notes. Uh, if this episode comes out the day that I think it's going to come out, um, happy birthday to me. <laughs> Today is my birthday. <laughs> as we're as we're listening to this, but not as we're recording this. So, happy birthday, me. Hopefully, I am. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I think I'm going to be flying home on my birthday. That's oh. good. 
Yeah, that's just what happens when your birthday is close to Christmas. That's yes. Like well, I feel like every other like year, the Sparrows have Astrano. We're all coming back to St. Louis. I am that's right. Guaranteed, going to forget about that until I listen to this after it airs again. So happy birthday, Josh! <laughs> yeah, happy birthday, oh, thank Josh. You. Exactly. Appreciate it. Remember um, text often for because I am usually either about to be home or am home for Christmas for my birthday. I usually try to like, you know use the fact that it's my birthday to get my parents and siblings out to dinner and then to the movie theaters if I can. Um, and I told you guys off mic, I just saw the holdovers last night. I think I might take my parents to go see the holdovers for my birthday. Because oh. the holdovers is a great movie to take your parents to see on Christmas, I think. It's really that kind of vibe. Is it going Is it going to like trigger me because it sees my pain as a curmudgeonly teacher of all boys? I think it does see your Alexander Payne yeah. as a curmudgeonly teacher of all boys. Yes, I think it might that might trigger you. Parts of that trailer were hitting a little too close to home. There, I was like, I should use some of these zingers, you know. Well, first of all, Paul Giamatti is just—he's like three quarter zingers in the movie. Um, <laughs> but he's also like—I feel like he's more curmudgeonly than you. Like he needs to—he needs to lighten up Francis a little bit in the whole. Okay. Okay. Well, I can I can look forward to that in about what twenty five years? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, how long would it take you to grow a mustache? And do you have a lazy eye? Um, I could probably get a lazy eye quicker than a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, like, there's like a weirdly strong emotional payoff to Paul Giamatti's lazy eye and the wow. holdovers that like kind of really got to me. Is like, it weird that I like never noticed that until the the trailer for the holdovers? Um, I don't know if it's like if that was a makeup effect or what. I didn't. Know. Oh, okay. I don't think I ever noticed Paul Giamatti having a. Uh, a lazy ass situation, but he definitely doesn't hold over. Okay. It's commented upon multiple times. So, okay. okay. Um, holdovers. Good picture. Might be taking my parents to see it shortly after this episode airs. We'll see. <laughs> but again, uh, this has been the kids. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope you return next week and also enjoy the King's speech. We'll talk to you then. See ya. Thanks for listening. That was a vibe kill. I was hoping Ken was going to go, I need your advice like I need a dick in my ass. (laughs) 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 Can I leave this in or no?